0: Martin Luther King Jr. holiday weekend, we talked about the sin of racism as a way to take a look at this whole process of repentance and repair, because this whole, for the next two more months, we're going to be doing a teaser, if you will, leading up into this common read that Ember was talking about on the book written by Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg. as part of the first stage of this whole process of repentance and repair, we talked about confessing our sins. And again, those of you who were here a couple of weeks ago know that I redefine sin from the more traditional notion to one about violating right relationships. And you might have noticed that I got a little worked up, and it was a fire and brimstone kind of sermon, right? Confess your sins, ye sinners in the hands of an angry God. Because y'all know, yes, hallelujah, amen. And several of you came up to me afterwards and said, that was a great sermon, Reverend Jonifer. It applied completely to the person sitting next to me. And so today, we're gonna talk about the next part of this process, but before we get into that, I wanna tell you a story. I wanna tell you a story about my previous settlement in Honolulu. And for those of you who don't um, know, Honolulu is a predominantly BIPOC state, one of maybe three or four out of the 50 that are, um, that white peop- where white people are the minority. And yet within that congregation, when I went in there, it was 95% white. And not only that, but I would guess that it was also 95% straight, which is why when, they, when I candidated as their first possibly um, BIPOC and also gay minister, there were some questions that were raised during the cottage meetings questions such as if we were to call you as our minister wouldn't that give off the impression out in the community that we're a gay church and my response was well wouldn't that be fabulous we'd be the first gay UU congregation in the country if not the world I said the more important question, and the other fear that you should be worried about is we're going to be known as that Asian church. And my rabbi friend um, from next door said, "Oh, when did you come out as Asian?" <laughs> so that, that, that whole conversation was awkward and um, let's just say uncomfortable in so many ways right and it's full of assumptions and um and 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 instances where intent does not equal impact because i have no doubt that the person asking that question had good intentions and had good worries about the future direction of the congregation as if I had anything to do with what happens to the demographic makeup of a congregation single-handedly. And I admit that people who may have been curious, who do identify with those two communities, might have come to the church to check me out. But at the end of the day, that's not what's going to make them stick around. Right? So I you know, I'm not responsible for what gets people to come back week after week and turn into members of the congregation. And again, it's not like the type of situation where if you have new people coming in with different identities, that somehow the existing members of that community will all of a sudden be pushed out. So it's not this whole, there's a limited number of seats around the table. And it, it brought to my mind this whole question of um, what, you know, what role does a miniature's identity play into how a congregation grows or how a congregation is run, right? This question was brought up last week and I thought to myself, well, the only way I could have authenticity in my ministry is to be fully out there with who I am But the congregation also needs to build and change the culture so that it would be welcoming, not just to me as the minister, but to any new person that walks through the doors of our congregations. And again, there's this whole question of as liberals, we are so good about knowing what to say and how to have good intentions around things not realizing that sometimes the impact falls in a different direction. We all have heard that expression, right? That the road to the hell that we don't believe in is full of good intentions. And I wanna say, by the way, that while I don't believe in a physical location in the afterlife called hell, where bad people go to suffer, I do believe that there is the state of being called hell, where we create suffering, torment, and harm to another, and a place where we commit harm to ourselves as well. So there is the state of being called hell, that if we don't pay attention to the impact of our words and our actions, could inadvertently cause someone a state of hell and harm and ill being. And so intent does not equal impact. And in many ways that that concept is captured in our board covenant. For example, we had a healthy discussion around this at our last board meeting, because how many of you woke up this morning and thought to yourself, Whoa, what a great day. No time like today to say the most homophobic, transphobic, sexist, and racist thing I could possibly think of. Raise your hand if that's what you woke up this morning thinking you would do. Nobody? Well, I didn't either, to be honest with you, but at the, at the course of the day sometimes, that does happen. There have been times when I have mispronounced someone, for example, right? or said something that would make me wanna put my foot in my mouth because I clearly cause harm to another person through my words and through my deeds. Which means that I need to take that moment to take a few deep breaths and go back to myself and say, how could I do this differently next time? what would a do-over look like and what would changing my language and changing my actions look and feel like and that is probably the most difficult stage in this five-part process of repentance and repair i asked my staff about this this past tuesday i said what would motivate you all to change. And by far the number one answer, the sort of family feud, you know, where you go, the, the, the tables turn and they go ding, 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 ding. The number one answer is pain, which kind of surprised me actually, because I also feel like most people don't want to engage in the change making process because that is painful. But to not change is, probably just as painful, right? More on that in a few here. But the other responses had to do with, well, I feel like I'm in a place where I am stuck, where I've hit a wall, or I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place. And therefore, that motivates me to change. So in recovery language, this is where someone hits rock bottom, right? So those are some of the more um uh, push factors that lead to change but there's also a couple of responses that talk about the pull factor of my hopes and dreams pull me towards change or self-love is actually what motivates me to change a habit or change my way of understanding the world and so there's a mix of both push and pull factors that motivate us to change. Now, I said I was gonna mention a little bit more about the pain aspect of it. And I found it interesting that Thich Han said that people are, have a hard time, um, people have a hard time, hang on a second, let me um, consult my notes here, that way I don't misquote Ty. People have a hard time letting go of their suffering. Out of a fear of the unknown, they prefer suffering that is familiar. Let me read that again. People have a hard time letting go of their suffering. Out of a fear of the unknown, they prefer suffering that they are familiar with. Right? So sometimes that's what is hindering us from changing and hindering us from moving in a different direction and so i must say that many people will pro- or some people i should say may not necessarily overcome this stage and move on to the rest because not only change requires changing our mindset and our intention all together. Now, getting back to this whole concept of racism and how to dismantle systems of oppressions within our congregations, I must tell you that um, if you fast forward four years later to when I left that congregation, no, it did not turn all gay. And secondly, it did not turn all BIPOC. And I think that there's a couple of reasons behind that, right? Um, One is that there hasn't been any work during those four years to dismantle the systems of oppression that turned away BIPOC people to begin with. I kid you not, I overheard conversations around microaggressions, for example, of BIPOC people coming into the church and um, and experiencing language and statements that turned them off completely and i'll tell you even me as a minister experienced that right because y'all know by now that i am a call and response kind of minister i want to make sure that y'all are alive out there and that you say amen from time to time to make sure that you're not asleep right and that you're responding to what i'm saying here so I got pulled aside by a member of the congregation, an older um, white woman who said, you know what, Jennifer? that style of call and response only applies to the black community. And if you haven't noticed here in Hawaii, we don't have that many black people. So I don't know why you even bother going there. And she said, besides the way I grew up and the way I understand it, The only time you would say amen is after a prayer and very reverentially, almost like a whisper, like amen. That's it. And I was like, well, I'm not doing it because I'm trying to trap black people or that I'm black. I'm doing it because this is my style of preaching and I wanna engage with you. And so sure enough though, that very Sunday, six black people showed up out of the 80 who were there, right? And I was like, yeah, no black people eh?" in, in Hawaii. So much for that. And they came up and, you know, they were amening with me, certainly. But they, they really appreciated the sense of inclusion because, you know, in my mind, diversity is not the same as inclusion. Diversity is when we sit there and count the number of BIPOC people, for example, in our congregation, right? And I asked my friend from All Souls in DC, I said, you know, your congregation is being lifted up as one of the ones that are more multicultural. And I said, how, you know, how many percent of your congregation is BIPOC, is it? And what's that critical mark of, you know, when there's enough there to sustain that level of interest? I said, is it 20%? You know, I heard the number 18% thrown around before. And she said, nope, that's not how we do this. That's not how we count diversity. And she said, we, however, view it this way. Can you sing the same song as your, the person sitting next to you on a, any given Sunday. And while it may not resonate with you that particular Sunday, you could appreciate that it resonates for the person sitting next to you. That's the sense of inclusion that we try to foster here. Meaning that it may be classical one Sunday, it may be jazz the next, or hip hop and r b and gospel the next Sunday, or whatever it is, right, that can we live in an environment where what rings true for the next person, even if it doesn't ring true for us, we could appreciate that it rings true for them. So that's inclusion where people count and where people are appreciated for who they are, and they could bring their whole authentic selves into this community. And so it requires a mind shift at this point from being self-focused to other-focused. And also I feel like we use have this sense of exceptionalism. And I think that mostly comes from the Unitarian side of the family, to be honest with you. William Ellery Channing preached a gospel of salvation by character that if only we develop our own moral characteristics well enough, we will exhibit our goodness, right? And that's what's gonna save the world. And yes, well, to some degree, I agree with that. There's this old saying that the Unitarians believe that we are too good to be damned, and the Universalists believe that God was too good to damn anyone, right? So there's a slight nuance there in that the goodness doesn't really reside within us necessarily, but there's a force of love out there that is so good that it compels us towards being good ourselves. And so um, it requires, I think, the shift of mindset from exceptionalism to humility. So like Ember amply exhibited for us earlier today, during the time for All ages, perhaps once in a while, we admit that we make mistakes and that we have fallen short of being in right relationship with one another. So perhaps that's a good starting place. And then out of that sense of humility, take a few more opportunities towards self-reflection and empathy how can we put ourselves in another's shoes? And it's like that line from To Kill a Mockingbird, walk a mile in another's moccasins, you know, which is actually um, a Native American saying, right? So how can we practice the sense of what would it feel like, for example, to be a BIPOC person in America today? And I would say that Go visit Hawaii and live there for a few years, and you'll know what it means to be a minority, right? And in some cases, even to be picked on simply because of the color of your skin. So empathy would, I think, help us towards this process of change and growth. And finally, it also requires a little bit of imagination. And again, I realized that none of us could undo the past. Our past mistakes are exactly that. However, can we imagine a different world where another possibility could be the norm and another world could be, um, we'll call this the beloved community, another world could be possible, right? So how can we use our imagination to unleash what is possible and work from that today, moving forward. I love what Sean Parker Denison said about how this work that we're doing is gonna be ongoing, which is true of any kind of spiritual transformation, which is true for any kind of spiritual practice. But as long as we continue to work on it, as long as we continue to make our intentions and shift it in a different direction, we, are getting closer and closer to building beloved community, because at this point, our love is incomplete. And the stage is incomplete. So I'm going to leave you with yet another cliffhanger. And that's how I'm going to leave it for today, is to say that after we do the confession, either privately or publicly, we get to a moment of changing our mindset and setting our intention in a way that involves humility, empathy, and creative imagination. Are y'all still with me on this journey? Amen. All right.
1: Thank you. Hi and welcome to Getting the Message where we dive a little bit deeper into our service themes each week. I'm really excited to be here with our interim minister Reverend Jennifer. Da, 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 <laughs> who I just discovered. Cute intro music. Yeah. I'm going to talk, you know, I'm going to talk to Rob about this. Maybe we need some, like, Reverend Jennifer intro music. <laughs> Please don't make it hail to the chief. I'm taking notes. <laughs> but Our actually, God save the Queen. I just discovered, prior to us filming, that we are both Year of the Dragoners.
0: We are indeed. It's going to be next Saturday,
1: and that's why I'm wearing my fancy-schmancy dragon tie. I I gained an appreciation for Lunar New Year, um, both in my Earth-centeredness, but also in my time living abroad. It's uh, I don't know. It's a little bit more fun than regular New Year because I feel like December thirty-first is just never. It's always kind of not the best weather. (laughs) We're tired from the holidays before that. I kind of love Lunar New Year now. It's a little bit more spaciousness, right? Right. And you never know when it's gonna fall
0: because it's at a different time each year, right? joys of a lunar calendar. Bring back lot, the lunar calendar. A lot better food, I feel like. Oh, that's definitely to, true. Not just champagne or booze, but actually, you know,
1: Delicious good food,
0: food and um, firecrackers and all the festivities.
1: Well, on an entirely
0: different <laughs> note, today <laughs> Although we... Although New Year is the time for change. <laughs> it's and true. So
1: I'm assuming you're going to tie it into today's message <laughs> about change and... Right So we've been talking about uh, repentance and repair. We Mm -hmm. You know, last week you did uh, your question box Sunday, so that was not related.
0: No. Um, (laughs) And the week before that, I was talking about grief. So it's been a couple weeks since we last talked
1: about this. Right. But we are back in the game talking about the various steps of the process of seeking to repent and repair damage caused in a situation. And so this one's about change. Is this, like, really a lot of external change, internal change... We're not quite at this? the external
0: part yet. So as you'll recall, the first week was all about confession. And what happens after confession is this time of deep reflection and in the internal
1: work that one does. Right. And, you know, I suppose February is as good a time for as any for internal work. We talked about wintering a few weeks ago, that it this is, is kind of the yeah. season for taking some time to go within and, and think about what's going on. But I think that internal work also applies to congregations, to communities we're part of, organizations we might be part of. That sometimes we need to step back from the doing, doing, doing and think about why we're doing things, how we're do how of the why we're doing things.
0: Indeed. And I feel like this whole interim time is about internal work. And self-reflection and trying to figure out if you were to do things differently. So if you were to have a do-over, in other words, what would that look like? And you're right. Um, as I mentioned with the earlier one, this is both individual and collective, right? So this is both a private process and a um, a corporate one.
1: right? And then from the change then also does need to be put into action as we move towards the seeking repentance yeah like but this
0: we're week. not in action yet as you know with any sorry for jumping of, ahead <laughs> that's next week or not next week two weeks from now um is we, when we get to the action part as okay. as is true with any political and community organizing work for example there's um ideally this loop of action reflection um so that we recoup and uh, debrief after we uh, engage with some kind of um, public witnessing or other action out there and then we think about how to perhaps re-strategize or um what the way forward would look like but i think it's critical that we take some time off to do this um, this this gathering of our thoughts right. to make sure that when we set our intention, like I mentioned before, that it doesn't have the same impact as before, because if the impact before caused harm, how could this time the impact be different, hopefully? Of course, we'll never be able to fully gauge what the impact is going to be like, but at the very least, we could... Um, tweak it a little bit so that our intention is in a different direction so that hopefully it'll produce a different outcome and have a different impact.
1: Well, you know, uh, this actually has me thinking about Taylor Swift. Um, <laughs> let me explain. No, so this We're going to go there, are we? No, this week uh, in The New Yorker, uh-huh. uh, which I recently subscribed to, um, hashtag cool kid now, <laughs> is... Uh, uh, there was a piece that I was reading, uh, about, um, it, I knew that I had chosen the right magazine for me when it was talking about Hegel and Taylor Swift in the same article and talking about her as a manifestation of the spirit of the moment. But so th- that being said, this is actually about Hegel. I just didn't want to scare anybody away by saying that,
0: <laughs> but the idea of... <laughs> I don't of... even remember Hegel anymore. <sighs> Can you
1: debrief me as to what his so...
0: greatest thoughts and
1: philosophies <laughs> were about? You know, luckily, I got an A from a very tough grading philosophy professor on a Hegel paper uh, back in the day. And I will hold that as my perfectionism standard for the rest (laughs) of my life. (laughs) And um, So it's about the idea of, like, the thesis and the antithesis coming together to create a synthesis. And I think that... What you were talking about with organizing Mm -hmm. is that same sort of principle. And it's something that I wish that I had kind of learned earlier in my life, earlier in my career, earlier in my organizing, because Mm -hmm. it's really important to not just constantly, as we were talking about, just not not just be going, 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 but Mm -hmm. to try an idea out, see what worked and what didn't work, bring that back. Do the work to think about what didn't work, figure out what you can do from there. You mm-hmm. can't ever, you're not going to succeed if you're just constantly tossing things out. You have to understand and kind of be in dialogue with the community, with with the people that you're offering maybe something to. It's a, it's a constant synthesis of organizing. So, what's
0: this got to do with Taylor
1: Swift? It was just an excuse for me to get to Hegel. <laughs> <Gotcha>. <laughs>
0: All right, so we're not going to get into this whole Super Bowl situation today, then.
1: That Oh, it's also Super Bowl Sunday, isn't it? Is that this week or next week? I lose track of these things. You I can tell that we week. are big yeah. sports fans <laughs> here. Um, I did see, however, um, a sign for a new musical as I was walking out. Oh, that uh, one. The, the Great really Gatsby. Into. Oh, yes. Um, so stay tuned. It was a decent book for, as well. <laughs> stay tuned but for how did future. How we get there again? <laughs> future discussions about the great gatsby all right no <laughs> promises let's plan a sermon i'm gonna you know i'll come up with an excuse for me to preach about the great gatsby somehow <laughs> but thank you jonathan for being with us thank you folks for listening
0: thank you for tuning in and until next time glad you were able to join us